Hi, and welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast. This is episode 31, A League of Their Own. How I love that movie. Gina Davis, Tom Hanks, and a comedic bit part by the great John Lovitz. Unsurprisingly, this episode has nothing to do with that brilliant release in 1992. Save from me using the title, because it not only fit with my love of nostalgia, it also perfectly describes Sparta's quest for regional hegemony in the 6th century BCE. More on that soon. Happy 2022, dear listeners. I hope you all had a safe, festive season and were able to navigate the mercurial world we now live in as best as possible. We certainly finished off last year with a bang. Having Professor Cartledge come on the show was such an honour. The plan is to see if he'll give a yearly, end-of-year summary like the last show. Tie up what we've learned over the past year with a neat little bow. Of course, he knows nothing of this plan, unless he listens to the show, that is. So I've got another 10 months to work things out. There's been some changes to the show during the time off. A couple of options to send financial support for the podcast have been added to the website, namely via PayPal and Buy Me A Coffee. As I've said before, the show will always remain entirely free, with no features occluded behind a paywall. This is mainly because I'm too lazy, slash busy, to create extra content aside from what's already available. With the donations I've thus far received, I've purchased an entirely new sound setup, new mic, and boom, along with some amplification gear, to hopefully enrich the natural, deep timber of my voice. <laughs> I live in hope. I must make a big shout out to two of my biggest fans, Sian and Gorgo. Thanks so much for being so generous, and thank you to everyone else who contributed as well. Much love and appreciation coming straight at you. There is now a blog up on the website too. Not a member? Then sign up at www.spartanhistorypodcast.com. Or just go there to check the blog out and the site too. Having never run a blog, it's a bit of a work in progress, but I encourage any and all suggestions and criticisms. Lastly, after some requests, I've begun working on some merchandise options. At the moment, it's looking like shirts and coffee or tea mugs. The designs I've seen so far look fantastic. It's just a question of costing and how to make it affordable for people, whilst at the same time keeping it sustainable. Like me, I'm sure you're just dying for some Spartan History podcast branded goods. Trust me, the Red Lambda, that is the upside down V, is basically autopilot to cool. All of your friends will already know that this is an indisputable fact. Okay, that should be enough by way of a reconnection. Let's cue the drums and get into it. In the last episode of 2021, we summarised the archaic phase of Sparta's history, and prior to that, had brought the narrative up to around the 600 BCE mark. Over the next few episodes, I'll be taking that story up to the Greco-Persian Wars and the beginning of the Classical Era. Technically, the 6th century is still defined as part of the Archaic Age, but it also represents the true beginning of historical Sparta. We have Herodotus, who gives us a fairly broad and opaque picture of the goings-on in Laconia at that time and Thucydides, Xenophon, and Aristotle, amongst others who reference, at least in part, the period too. It's a nice change to be able to rely on relatively contemporary sources. That being said, we still have to delve into modern historical thought to help add depth to the picture. The Allied Greeks' defeat of the Persians at Plataea in 479 BCE was an occurrence of such significance to our modern world, one that, in my mind, isn't given enough credit. It's one of those classic what-ifs that historians love to spill ink over. Like, what if Hannibal had marched on Rome directly after his stunning victory at Cannae in 216? Or, what if Alexander decided to go west rather than east on his great campaigns? 
These are fun questions to tackle. Rarely, however, does anyone ask, what if Xerxes had been victorious at Plataea? By this stage, Athens was already in smouldering ruin, the women and children having been evacuated to the Peloponnesian city of Treason, the birthplace of Theseus. With the creme of Hellas's defiant hoplite forces lying either dead on the field or scattered to the breeze like so much chafe, there was little standing in the way of Xerxes' ultimate revenge on those who had so spurned his and his father's aegis. I'm fully aware that the naval battle of Salamis was also a pivotal event, but without a land-based defeat, the Persians were still able to consolidate any territorial gains made. After all, it wasn't Alexander's considerable naval forces that won for him his gigantic eastern empire. Besides, the Persian army had spent considerable time and resource developing an overland supply route. The loss of their navy, whilst an extreme inconvenience, wouldn't have prevented ultimate Achaemenid control of Hellas. Persian kings were particularly sensitive when it came to slights against their honour. Their empire was extremely heterogeneous in nature, with numerous different cultures submitting to the will of the god-king. They could afford to brook no challenge to their authority, lest others decide to test their luck. Make no mistake, the latter phases of the Greco-Persian Wars were all about revenge. The Athenian and Eritrean involvement in the Ionian Revolt of the 490s led Darius to the first Persian invasion of Greece the goal here, to punish those two cities for their transgressions. His force first went to Eritrea on Euboea, where they sacked the city, killed all the male inhabitants, and transported the women and children deep into the Persian Empire for a life of indentured servitude. Next stop for the god-king's forces were those pesky Athenians, and the fleet anchored off a little place called Marathon, where the armies were disgorged onto the beaches. Democracies can be fantastic things when it came to quick decisions. Sometimes this led to regret, as in the case of the Mytilenean debate of 427, but in the case of Marathon, it was a most excellent attribute. Not wishing to await siege, blockade and starvation, the Athenians marched to Marathon. There, under the brilliant leadership of Miltiades, the men of Athens and some Plataean allies, routed the Medes and sent them packing back to Asia Minor with their tail between the legs. Darius passed away due to ill health in 486. The Greek question left largely unresolved. It was his heir and successor, Xerxes, who took up the mantle of revenge on behalf of his father. If he defeated the Greeks wholesale during the second Persian invasion, would he have been satisfied with adding Greece as another satrapy of his extensive domain? It's hard to say. Some of the cities of Magna Graecia, or Italy, had sent assistance to their mainland cousins. They too would need to be punished for those actions, in much the same way as Athens and Eritrea did originally. This might have brought the dreaded Mede to the Italian peninsula, and who knows where from there. Either way, had Greece fallen under Persian dominion at the end of the Greco-Persian Wars, it's unlikely that Hellenic culture would have exploded east with the conquests of Alexander, or that the Romans, who so adored Greekness, would have gone on to make it the essence of their own high culture. Where eventually, with the shift to the Byzantine Empire, Hellenism and the Greek language became that new structure's central tenets. No, I think we have much to thank those brave Greeks of 4794, and without them, the world today would be a vastly different one. So why this serious digression into a period forward of our current narrative? I personally find it stunning that over the course of the 6th century, two extremely different cities went down two unique paths, leading each to precisely where they needed to be, historically. Talk about right time, right place. Both Athens and Sparta arrived at 500 BCE, to each in their own way provide the pieces necessary to defeat the greatest empire the world had ever seen up until that point. 
It's not the Athenian History Podcast, so we'll leave their section of the story aside. But for the Spartans, the latter phase of the Archaic Age was a time when their destiny became manifest. They assuredly had no idea how events would unfold, but nonetheless, the evolution of their state was slowly bringing them to a place where they would have to face the impossible and win. A place where history ordained, they stand up and be counted. Over the next few episodes, we'll see how that story amalgamates and how destiny can be realised. There's a lot to cover before we get to the Greco-Persian Wars, so I'm going to break the 6th century up into a few different sections to avoid too much complexity in the narrative. As the title suggests, we'll be looking in depth at the formation of the Peloponnesian League here. The next episode will focus on Sparta's external affairs during the period and bring into play some of the individual Spartans which history has left an account of. The final instalment will look exclusively at Lacedaemonia under the rule of King Cleomenes, a powerful leader whose influence ran roughshod over the Ephorate and Gerusia. His reign, 524 to 490, is more or less the story of Sparta for the period. So preponderant was his policy and authority. Sparta by 600 had complete dominion over two-fifths of the peninsula and had undergone some drastic societal and political reforms. More closely resembling the warrior society popularised in the minds of modern audiences by that stage. By 500, she extended that control to another two-fifths and also held sway in areas outside of the Isthmus of Corinth. Through an intricate series of alliances, generally unequal in nature, Lacedaemon achieved regional hegemony and as such could muster the largest Greek army in history up until that point. The like not seen again until the time of Philip and Alexander of Macedon. I'll also take this opportunity to introduce some of the lesser-known regional players who made up this league. The problem with classical Greek history is it's largely Athenocentric in form. Sparta, as that place's main antagonist, gets a fair mention, but many of the other venerable polices concerned get barely a cursory glance. We'll rectify that as much as possible as we put together the league. I'll preface my attempt to explain the league's founding with a quote from friend of the show, Professor Paul Cartledge. He writes, The origins of the Peloponnesian League are mostly lost in the mists of Herodotean logography. For although they fall squarely within the period chosen for special inquiry by the father of history, Herodotus was not the historian to be slowed down by diplomatic and constitutional niceties. And there is no documentary evidence, certainly datable before 479, to put flesh on his narrative skeleton. Right you are, Professor. But like you, we'll press on nevertheless. A technicality in terminology needs to be cleared up first. I'll refer to it almost exclusively as the Peloponnesian League during this episode. But the ancients referred to it simply as the Lacedaemonians and their allies. In Greek, allies reads as sumachia, which means both a defensive and offensive ally. You can be assured that this worked only in Sparta's favour. While Sparta could draw an ally into war, it isn't obvious an ally would be able to drag Sparta into one, though they could expect Spartan aid in the event of being attacked. Lacedaemonians and their allies is also more accurate as it depicts Sparta as the dominant and driving force, whereas the Peloponnesian League infers that it was a conglomerate of relative equality, which simply isn't true. At any rate, the acquisition of Messenia beginning in the late 8th and consolidating in the early 7th centuries, became Sparta's last true military conquest as far as a permanently occupied territory goes. It was hard-fought and uncertain in periods, but largely successful. 
It gave the city the ability to broaden its landholding oligarchy considerably and brought enough servile labour within the fold to emancipate the homoioi from the plough and instead take up the spear as a full-time vocation. It was a winning formula, and there was no reason why the Spartans wouldn't try to emulate the process. So it was that they turned their gaze to the north and set their sights on the city of Tegea. Although somewhat overshadowed by her powerful neighbours, Argos to the east and Sparta almost due south, Tegea was nonetheless an important and powerful polis in its own right. Listed in Homer's catalogue of ships in the Iliad, it contributed men and arms to the conflict at Troy as part of the larger Arcanian contingent. It was by far the most famous town in the region, and in the aftermath of Troy, Tegea's legendary king, Echmus, killed Helus in single combat. Helus was the son of Heracles and his wife Dianara. He was also one of the champions leading the Dorian conquest of the Peloponnese, foretold in the legend of the Heraclidae. Situated as it was, on the most direct, though rather rugged route to Sparta, it was natural for the Lacedaemonians to turn their gaze on the Polis's fertile surrounds. It was, after all, barely 50 kilometres or 31 miles distant from Sparta's home range. If we can trust Pausanias's narrative for the Second Mycenaean War, the two cities, or at least their armies, had clashed before. The Chigeot king, Aristocrates, sided against Sparta. In 659, once again, according to Pausanias, the Spartans lost a battle at Figilia, which lies just to the southwest of Tegea. At the very least, these stories suggest Lacedaemonian interest in the area, and provide a possible historical context for the quarrels the two polices had during the 6th century. Another contributing factor to continued hostilities was the general Arcadian practice of offering succour to any defecting halots. Being the most prominent Arcadian city of the time, controlling Tegea would give the Spartans extra lines of defence against their enslaved populace. In Book 1 of the Histories, Herodotus lays out in typically broad strokes the continued struggle between these two cities that occurred in the first half of the 6th century. This time, it began in true Spartan fashion, with a Delphic oracle. Wanting to conquer the entirety of Arcadia, a Spartan delegation was tasked with procuring the will of Apollo. The Pythia told them the following. Arcadia, great is the thing you ask, I will not grant it. In Arcadia are many men, acorn eaters, and they will keep you out. Yet, for I am not grudging, I will give you Tegea to dance in with stomping feet and her fair plane to measure out with the line. As usual, those receiving an oracular pronouncement from Apollo failed to appreciate the ambiguous nature of his verse, and it came to pass that during the joint reign of the Argeid king Leon and that of his Europonted co-king Agisicles, roughly 575 to 560, the Spartans launched an invasion of Tegea. The oracle clearly points out this war was going to be a war of conquest, and not one of merely plunder. The oracle says, and her fair plane to measure out with the line, indicates that the Spartans not only intended to stay, but measure and divide the land up, much as they had already done in Messenia. So confident were they in Apollo's words, and their own might, they took with them chains and shackles to press the conquered Tegeots into Halitage, working the newly divided Cleroi. It wasn't to be, and in a twist of irony worthy of 5th century Athenian tragedy, the Spartans lost the so-called Battle of the Fetters on the plains outside Tegea. The war captives were then bonded by their own chains and forced to work the fields for their new Tegeat masters. A century and a half later, Herodotus tells us that he saw those same very chains hung as trophies within Tegea's Temple of Athena. 
Additionally, some 700 years after the battle, Pausanias has shown them too in his travels. Apart from this defeat, we know little else about the fortunes of Sparta during what was surely a series of excursions and minor campaigns over an extended period of time. Despite not being able to get the upper hand against the Tegeats, Herodotus assures us, with absolutely no evidence to support it, that the Spartans were successful in all their other wars. There is some archaeological evidence to support the historian's claim, however. Around the 570 BCE mark, the Spartans renovated and re-established the temple to Artemis or Thea by the banks of the Eurotus. Add to that the quality and distribution of their pottery reached an apogee around the same time. Both these things are clear signs that the Laconian economy was in very good shape. We hear nothing else about the conflict, though, until the reign of Argid Anaxandridis and the Eurypontid Ariston, 560-520 BCE. Here in his narrative, Herodotus indicates that Sparta, by the midpoint of the century, had triumphed over the Tegeats. And the story of how they achieved their victory was once again in true Spartan fashion, coming with a Delphic oracle. This time, the Pythia delivered the following. In Arcadia lies Tegea in the level plain, where under strong constraint two winds are blowing. Smiting is there, and counter-smiting, and woe on woe. Their earth, the giver of life, holds Agamemnon's son. Bring him home, and you will prevail over Tegea. A wily homoioi by the name of Lichus took the oracle in a very literal sense. He went to Tegea and found a forge that had two bellows, two winds blowing. The hammer hit in the anvil, creating weapons of death, smiting and counter-smiting, woe on woe. The blacksmith told Lichus of some large bones he'd found whilst digging a well in the yard, the earth holding Agamemnon's son. And indeed, upon inspection, the Spartan recovered the bones of Orestes and properly took them back to Sparta. I've always thought that they must have been some sort of dinosaur bones for the story to have any truth to it. So is it possible that, like Hippocrates being the father of medicine, is Lycus the father of paleontology? It's a field I know nothing about in all fairness, but either way, from that point on, Sparta had the better of their rivals. Herodotus says as much as he concludes his story. Orestes was an extremely significant figure for the Spartans. I've previously described how during the 7th century the Lacedaemonians, as descendants of Heracles, masters now of Messenia and Laconia, sought to legitimise their claim on regional domination by tying themselves to Homeric legend. The building of the temple complex at Therapne, dedicated to Helen, Menelaus, Castor and Polyduces, was born out of this quest. Orestes, although the son of Agamemnon, fed into this as well as he went on, after killing his mother and Agisthus, to marry Hermione, the daughter of Helen, and thus became king of Sparta. Like many of the ancillary tales that garnish his main narrative, the Halicarnassan doesn't go into great detail here either. We can glean much from the story, though, if we take a look at the facts as we know them. Tegea was assuredly, due to its proximity to Sparta, one of, if not, the earliest polis to reach an accord with the city. The story of the oracle predicting how this new territory could be effectively annexed is not dissimilar, fundamentally, to the Great Retro. What we saw in that instance was the ruling elite of Sparta, using Apollo's will, so to speak, to endorse the changes that were politically current at the time, namely, the levels of government and the system of legal promulgation. This time we can see, in the first oracle, that Apollo's favour would not be awarded to the Laconians in the event that they lost the contest through strength at arms, which in all likelihood happened. Defeat was nothing new to the archaic Spartans. In the second oracle, 
the god lays out a plan how the defeated Spartans could gain Tegea via means of magic, trickery, and intelligence. We know from Aristotle that a stele was erected to commemorate the alliance, perhaps on the border of Tegea and Sparta. So magical tale true or false, an accord was certainly reached. Although not extant in its original form, Aristotle records that part of the treaty stipulated that the Tegeats were not allowed to offer any support to exiled or escaped helots. This was a common clause in Peloponnesian League alliances moving forward. Here I think we get to the crux of the League, the helot question. Remembering that Thucydides, and others for that matter, stated that all of Sparta's activities had the sole goal of keeping the helots suppressed and subordinate. The Spartans could ill afford a deplete of war away from their home range, having worked so hard at subjugating the Messenians already. Better to enter into mutual agreements with cities that would swear by the Olympians to offer the enslaved no assistance. Full disclosure, this tale of defeat, prophecy and final victory is as close to a complete account for Apollos having joined with Sparta by unequal treaty. We have a fair idea what major city-states eventually constituted the League, and some idea of the minor ones too. What we don't have is any concise story to tell about how it all happened. What follows from here is my best-case scenario for how it all pieced together. Herodotus tells us, with frustrating vagueness, that by about 550, Sparta was in control of the majority of the peninsula. I quote from Book 1. Then he dug up the grave, collected the bones, and took them away to Sparta. And ever since that day, the Lacedaemonians, in any trial of strength, had by far the better of it. They had now subdued the greater part of the Peloponnese. The bones are the ones of Orestes already discussed, and it was the Tegeats who afterwards were bested in trials of strength. Herodotus suggests that with the conclusion of this war, Sparta had already established the Peloponnesian League, at least in a large part, if not completely. Whichever, Uncle H isn't very helpful here. Next, we'll turn our gaze to Elis and its surrounds, situated to the northwest of Laconia. Influence and nominal control here would effectively ham in the subjugated people of Messenia completely, leaving them with no land-bound egress out of their home range. How the Spartans came about that control is reasonably convoluted, so bear with me. Another city with a history steeped in Homeric legend, Elis was perhaps most famous for having within its territory the site of Olympia, a sacred site. There are several different stories with how the region became consecrated as a place of holy competition. It's not important which one of the tales is the most correct. What is important to understand is that the archaic Greeks believed it to be an extremely important place to venerate the gods. The demigods competed here to honour various deities, so legend goes, and man came to compete here under an Olympian truce to honour the demigods and the gods alike. Due to its proximity to the site, six miles or so to the northwest, it fell to Ellis to organise and adjudicate the competition, not initially competitions. For the first 13 games, the only event held was the Stade, a foot race of around 200 yards or 180 metres. Check out the episode's photos on my website. You can see me standing at the starting blocks used for this race. Anyway, religious and physical control of the area gave great prestige to Ellis, but the city was not the only kid on the Olympian block. Just over a mile east of Olympia lay a barely remembered polis called Pisa. Although situated far closer to the site of the ancient games, Pisa was smaller than her western neighbour and had nowhere near the clout or influence of Alice. This didn't stop the Pisans from having aspirations of grandeur, despite being relatively impotent by itself. The polis, however, was able to enlist the help of Sparta's real archaic antagonist, the Argives. 
I don't intend to go into the history of Argos at any length here. They were never members of the Peloponnesian League and remained aloof from most affairs relating to the Greeks, save where their own interests were directly impugned. In the next episode, we'll be looking directly at Sparta's relationship with the world outside of the League. Argos will form a large part of that. But in brief, from around 700, Argos came under the sway of one of the first tyrants, or Tyrannos in Greek. His name was Phaedon. His reign coincided with, and indeed he was partially responsible for, an extremely tectonic period in Sparta. First, there was the general Halot uprising known as the Second Mycenaean War, in which Argos and Pisa took the side of the Helots, and Alice sided with Sparta. Secondly, as we looked at briefly in episode 23 with Professor Bardunius, the crushing defeat of the Spartans at Hisii in 669 BCE occurred. The victors in that fight were the Argives, under the leadership of Phaedon. Following this defeat, and possibly in response to a weakened Sparta, Phaedon in turn lent aid to the Pisans, helping them oust the Eleans from the control of Olympia. According to Pausanias, this occurred in the year 668 in the 28th Olympiad, only one year after Hisii. Fast forward into the 6th century, where we are currently, and a Sparta more focused on alliance rather than conquest, and we can see a perfect opportunity for the Lacedaemonians to cement an alliance in the region of Alice. Having particularly long memories, it wouldn't do to align themselves with the formerly perfidious Pisans, but Alice had a long-standing, special relationship with Sparta. Not just her ally during the Second Mycenaean War, but we have seen that, according to Aristotle, the quasi-mythical lawgiver Lycurgus was believed to have had a hand in the creation of the original Olympic Games. At the very least, the evidence suggests that the 8th century Eleans and Spartans collaborated in some sense. So it was that sometime after 590 and before 550 BCE, we aren't entirely sure when, the Spartans helped reinstall the people of Elis to their ceremonial duties in the Olympic festival. We aren't told how, but I believe personally Sparta marched north and crushed the town of Pisa into dust. With no powerful ally to assist them in the 6th century, Argos wasn't what it once was. The Pisans didn't stand a chance against the army from Laconia. I support this by the fact that there is no further mention of Pisa in the historical texts for almost four centuries. A very grateful Alice became an extremely important and particularly loyal member of the Peloponnesian League, signing a similar treaty with Sparta to the Tegeats. The most important clause, as before, was that they were to offer no aid to any of the Helots. Messenia was now completely ringed by states apathetic to their cause. Next, it is also believed that during the early phase of the 6th century, Sparta expanded the borders of what was considered Laconia, and also acquired a piece of considerable transmarine influence. The natural range of Laconia was between the Teigetus and Parnon mountain ranges, but from around this time, and still to this day, the eastern Parnon foreshore, bordering the Metoan Sea, and the easternmost peninsula of the Peloponnese, known as the Melia, fell within the dominion of Sparta. There is really no historical information to support this, nor is there truly any clear idea about who previously held sway in the area. Some modern historians have proposed that both areas, peninsula and foreshore, were controlled by Argos, but there's no real facts as to why this may have been the case, and geographically at least, it doesn't make much sense. What is clear, archaeologically at least, is that from about 570 onwards, Laconian pottery became prolific and preponderant here. Perhaps none of the great Peloponnesian polluses had any concerns here, and it was a simple matter for Sparta to extend her aegis over this rather remote place. It was, after all, a natural and easy extension of her home range. 
It was most likely in the same fashion that the island of Kithara came under Spartan control as well. Situated some 10 miles of the Melian Peninsula, the island has a rich archaeological history stretching back to the Stone Age. In times more recent to our story, it had been partially colonised by the seafaring Phoenicians in the late 9th or early 8th centuries. Drawn here by the Murex sea snail, it became a centre for the production of the famous Tyrian purple dye so coveted by the ancients. Although Argive control of the eastern Parnon foreshore is difficult to confirm, their presence on the island, pre-650, is impossible to deny. Remembering this was the era of Phaedon's tyranny over the Argolid and the zenith of its archaic history, it is unsurprising that the Argives had some type of influence on so rich, beautiful, and strategically important place. However, with the fall of Phaedon, it looks like the island reverted to its own internal governance, leaving it a ripe fruit on the vine for a Spartan looking to consolidate its place of Peloponnesian primacy. Certainly by 550, Kithra became beholden to Laconian power, and a new, annual position was created within the Spartan government for the management, or at the very least, the overseeing of the place. Called the Kithrathikis, or Judge of Kithra, Thucydides writes that the elected official also had a force of hoplites to support his prestige. Similar positions were created for other important periochic communities within Laconia and Messenia. All were referred to as polises as well. This denotes some autonomous control, but with Spartan oversight likely on matters of war and foreign affairs. Such independent, though only nominally so, places were central to Spartan control of the Peloponnesian League. This will become abundantly obvious as we finalise this episode by looking at the League's function and form. From here it was natural that Spartan control extended itself up and across the entirety of mountainous and remote Arcadia to the north of Laconia. As we've seen, that region's most important city, Tegea, had already entered into treaty with the red-cloaked warriors and there really wasn't any other population centre worthy of being called a polis in existence at that time. Therefore, the local towns and villages had two choices. One, submit to the Argives, whose impropriety during the 7th century had left a bad taste in the locals' mouths already, or two, go the way of Tegea and submit to Sparta. We know not how it occurred as well, but Arcadia, in the mid-6th century, completely fell under the sway of Sparta. On one of the few central lowlands of Arcadia, at around the 500 BCE mark, the town of Mantinia was formed when a loose collection of villages Sinoicized. This new polis automatically became an important member of the League, so the general region is retroactively assumed to have already been part of the Alliance. The Sinoicism of this new polis may also have had Spartan assistance. To the north of Arcadia and Alice lies the region of Archaea, which is hemmed in on the north by the Corinthian Gulf. It too had no large city of note during this period, and was largely left alone by the Spartans, who already secured their northern frontiers with the influence exerted over Alice and Arcadia. Post the Dorian migration, this region became the last place of freedom for Homer's Archaeans, and during the period, they still spoke a very old form of Greek. Sparta's next move was to bring the polis of Sicyon within the fold of the League. Situated at the confluence of Arcadia's, Corinthia's and Archaea's borders, it controlled the best land route south to Sparta if one wanted to avoid the Argolid. In Mycenaean times, it was a vassal state to Mycenae, though this is likely a later invention to give the city some ancient prestige. It had fallen under the control of Argos during the Archaic Age, but during, and perhaps inspired by, Phaedon's tyranny, Sicyon began its own in about 670 BCE. First, under Orthogoras, and later his progeny, the most famous of which was Clisthenes, who 
who ruled from 600 to around 560. He was also the grandfather of the great Athenian legislator who bore the same name. Under the tyrant Clusthenes, Sicyon clearly rose to a prominent place of power and was instrumental in what is known as the First Sacred War, 595-585. to The chief target of this war was the city of Kira, opposite Sicyon on the Corinthian Gulf, which acted like a port city for the holy sanctuary of Delphi. The citizens of Kira had long terrorised and robbed pilgrims to the site, and a collection of Thessalian cities, along with Sicyon, raised armies and navies and lay siege to the offending city. Cleisthenes was apparently an overall command of the alliance, and it was his city's powerful navy that blockaded the port of Kira. Siege techniques were extremely primitive in the Mediterranean at this time, and more or less revolved around starving a city's inhabitants into submission. Although, in what was surely one of the first attempts at chemical warfare, the attackers poisoned the water supply of Kira by polluting it with hellebore. The weakened defenders capitulated, the city razed, and all the survivors were slaughtered. The land was then freshly consecrated to Apollo to prevent anyone else daring to attempt direct physical control of Delphi. As commander-in-chief, Clasthenes was awarded one-third of the booty, thus further enriching Sicyon. As is so often the case with tyrannies, the successor can rarely emulate the deeds of his progenitor, and this would prove true in the case of Ischinis, who ruled after Clasthenes. It isn't clear what occurred that soured the people of Sicyon against their ruler, but that being said, we can safely assume it was a mix of the usual things that brought authoritarian rulers down. Arrogance, conceit, incompetence, avarice and envy. Either way, we are told that in 556 BCE, the Spartans overthrew the tyranny of Aeschines and installed their favourite kind of government in his place, a grateful oligarchy. As an aside, this date also coincides with the ephorate of Helon, a mysterious but famous Spartan who makes the list of the seven sages of Greece a list in which he is joined by other famous Greeks, such as Solon of Athens and Thales of Miletus. We'll talk more of Helon in the next episode, but it is possible that his influence was great enough to affect Sparta's intervention in Sicyon and set the Spartans down the path of being known as liberating tyrannicides, a title that, as we shall see, they had a fractious relationship with. After Tegea, Sicyon was the most important city-state to join the Peloponnesian League. Although it isn't popularly known, the place contributed greatly to the ultimate Greek victory in the Greco-Persian Wars. Paying testimony to its importance was the serpent column erected at Delphi after the victory at Plataea. Etched on the coils of the serpent were the names of the cities that contributed to the Greek victory. They read from the top, Sparta, Athens, Corinth, Tegea, and then Sicyon, fifth out of 31 contributors. The broken remains of this beautiful monument now rest in the Hippodrome of Istanbul, just outside the Blue Mosque. With the addition of Sicyon to the League, Sparta now had an extremely secure home range. Anyone so inclined to attack them, or liberate the Mycenaeans, would have had to fight, and fight hard before their target was in sight. They had almost completely sealed off the Peloponnese, and the next member to join them would effectively lock out any intruder into the peninsula. I of course talk about the mighty city of Corinth. There are many cities that could possibly vie for third place if we were to list the archaic polices in order of importance on mainland Greece. Sparta and Athens would easily fill the first two slots, but who comes next would be a matter for debate. A case could be made for Argos, or even Thebes, but by the sheer impressiveness of its topography, location and wealth, you could easily say that Corinth deserved the honour. Situated on the thin, six kilometre wide isthmus that joined the Peloponnese to the rest of Greece, the area is stunning. It had easy access to two harbours, 
one on the southeast that serviced the Saronic Gulf with the Aegean beyond, and one on the northwest that gave access to the eponymously named Corinthian Gulf. Its position also controlled access to and from the Peloponnese. With such advantages in location, it is only natural that Polis sprang up there. Corinth was, from ancient times, a hub of trade and a maritime power of the highest order. The ancient city's Acropolis, known as Acro-Corinth, provided an incredibly inaccessible safe haven for the ancient and medieval inhabitants of the place. It also dwarfs its Athenian counterpart in size and scope, if not necessarily in grandeur. Corinth's legendary founder was the damned king Sisyphus, who, for the crime of breaking Zeus's sacred rite of Xenia, or guest friendship, was cursed by the Olympian to forever push a boulder up a steep incline. This was no ordinary piece of stone, however, and just as Sisyphus came near the top of the hill, it always rolled away from him, back to the bottom, from where the task would begin anew and in perpetuity. We occasionally use the term Sisyphean to describe tasks of interminable nature due to this curse. By the time of Troy, according to Homer, Corinth was part of Agamemnon's fiefdom, providing ships and men to the war effort. In the aftermath of the Trojan War, the coming of the Heraclidae dramatically changed the landscape of the Peloponnese. Conquered and refounded as Corinth, originally being called Ephida, originally ruled by a family known as the Bachiavi, who first as kings and later as an oligarchy, did so right down to the mid-7th century. At this time, as we have seen at other places, the city fell under the dominion of a tyrant, this one named Kypselus. His reign lasted from 658 to 628, a time of great prosperity which led to the foundation of many colonies. Occurring against a backdrop of the migration phase, some of the more famous were Syracuse in Sicily and Kokira, modern Corfu. Upon his death, Kypselus's son, Periander, began his own tyranny over the Corinthians. It's important to note that in the modern age, the word tyrant has entirely negative connotations, but it wasn't necessarily so for the ancient Greeks. Sure, there were some fairly nasty autocrats that held the title of tyrant and painted their record in blood and misery on the annals of history, but there were also many who ruled justly. In the Greek language, tyrannos simply meant someone who had assumed or inherited power via means unconstitutional, which isn't to say the assumption had no popular support. Periander fell into the latter category and was included in the list of seven great sages of ancient Greece, along with the aforementioned Helon of Sparta. His reign, and that of his father's, was truly the golden age for archaic Corinth, with wealth and prestige pouring in from all quarters of the Mediterranean. Periander sought to alleviate the distance between its two ports by first commissioning a channel to be cut across the isthmus. Looking to allow ship passage from the Aegean to the Corinthian seas, he gave this idea up upon realising the magnitude of the task. Interestingly, a great many people tried to complete this canal over the millennium. The Roman Emperor Nero decided to have a go at it, infamously striking the first cut with a golden pickaxe before leaving the real work for up to some 6,000 Jewish prisoners of war. That attempt was largely unsuccessful, but various other attempts were made until the work was finally completed by the Greeks in 1893, some 2,500-odd years after the works began. The Corinthian Canal is a sight to behold, and not to be missed if you're ever in the area. Periander's mind came up with another, and to my mind at least, a more typically Greek solution. He commissioned the construction and completion of the Diolcus, which translates as the across-carrying device in English. It was a rudimentary railroad that consisted of limestone slabs that ran across the isthmus 
with a gap between them large enough for a ship's keel. There are a few theories as to how it operated, but the one I liked the best was that a team of oxen towed a ship to the Diocles' high point. Once there, a long rope or chain was attached from that ship to the next in queue. As the first was assisted on its downward trajectory, it helped pull up the next. This process was repeated until the entire fleet was moved from one harbour to the next. However it worked, the advantage such a construction gave Corinth was immeasurable. Being able to move its war fleet from the Corinthian Gulf to the Aegean Sea and back again, but also charge tariffs on any merchant vessel looking to save time on lengthy journeys around the Peloponnese. Dying in 585 BCE, it seems his nephew and successor wasn't able to maintain his firmer grip on power, being assassinated by an oligarchic plot barely three years later. Now once again, it's difficult to tease out how and why the Corinthians allied themselves with Sparta in around the 550 mark. My best guess, considering the evidence, is as follows. Tyrants are ever the friend of the poor, working-class members of society. After all, it was that class that gave the tyrant the ability to elevate himself to rule, and predominantly that class that helped prolong that rule. Perhaps the citizenry longed for another tyrant, and the burden of aristocratic rule wore heavily upon them. Fearing a loss of power, the oligarchs turned to the Spartans for alliance to support their own rule. We know the Spartans had a penchant for removing tyrants and replacing them with the stable oligarchies. It was, in fact, the style of government the Spartans preferred in their allied city-states. Relations between Corinth and Argos hadn't been good for a long time either, and by the maxim of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the Corinthians could benefit doubly from Spartan support. With Corinth added to the league, Sparta had achieved a pocket of safety within the Peloponnese, whilst controlling access to the peninsula and almost completely encircling its main antagonist, Argos, with Polis as favourable to themselves. There are other members who joined at a later date, but these will fit better into our narrative as it progresses. During the Peloponnesian War, or as we'll call it the Delian War, the League reached its greatest extent, taking in Megara to the east of Corinth, Epidaurus to the east of Argos, and even reaching into Boeotia. By the time Persia crossed spears with the League at Plataea, this coalition could muster 30,000 hoplites and numerous light infantries in support. It was just the kind of force the Greeks would need to repel the eastern invaders. We'll wrap this episode up by looking at how the League functioned. It's imagined that each polis was subject to an individual written treaty of alliance to Sparta, but not necessarily amongst themselves. Within each treaty were three basic clauses. The first, should an ally be attacked, then Sparta was to respond with all its available power. This clause supported the oligarchy Sparta preferred, as much as protected the individual polis. Spartan military might was the predominant force within the Greece by the mid-6th century, and the mere thought of her red-cloaked warriors marching out for war was enough to give many potential enemies pause. The relationship between Spartan elites and those of their allies should be dwelt on for a moment to understand its significance. Oligarchic power within the League members depended on, initially, the prestige of birth, land ownership and wealth, but ultimately it came down to Spartan support. That was the glue that held aristocratic rule together over time. These nobles would have entered into relationships of Xenia, or guest friendship, with their Spartan counterparts, and in particular with the two ruling houses. From Xenophon, we learn of a practice known in Greek as Trophimoi Xenoi, or of foreign nurslings in English. A common practice in the ancient world, whereby the children of a city's rulers were sent, in this case to Sparta, for possible enrolment in the agoge and education in Spartan practices. This produced just the kind of future allies the Lacedaemonians preferred. Xenophon knew this practice intimately as his own children went through the agoge. 
Although the Allies were left largely autonomous, the Xenia relationships gave the Spartans the opportunity to engage militarily and politically with them at the highest levels. As an addendum to this clause, conversely, it was an Allies' responsibility to assist Sparta militarily in the event of evasion. Something that did not in fact happen until the Battle of Leuctra in 371, and we shall see then, some rebellious members of the League were assisting the Theban-led coalition that finally broke Laconian power. The second clause. The Allies agreed to offer no assistance to any Hallet exiles, and moreover, in the event of rebellion, would lend the Spartans military aid in quelling the unrest. Most famously, this clause was enacted in the year 464. That year, Sparta was struck by a devastating earthquake that destabilised her systems of governance and caused large-scale destruction within the city and its surrounds. Buoyed by their overlord's distress, the Helots rose in revolt. This uprising was particularly noteworthy in that not only the Mycenaean Helots, but for the first and only time, their Laconian counterparts too joined in. A request for aid was sent to all League members, and as the Hellenic League, the one formed during the Greco-Persian Wars, was still nominally in place, Athens too sent a force of hoplites. It was perhaps every bit as dire a situation as the Second Mycenaean War, but I'll dedicate an episode to the event sometime in the future. The final clause was that the Allies would follow wherever the Spartans will lead. This wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion. In the earliest phases of the League, Sparta may have had the ability to simply command a levy and lead them to a battlefield of their own choosing. However, by the time the League began to involve itself in truly large-scale wars, Sparta needed to secure a majority vote from the Allied members. Only Sparta had the right to call such a council, and as she had formulated the League, had an extreme amount of influence over the proceedings. I singled out Kithera earlier to show how Sparta could in effect have its own, not-so-independent voting bloc. Not large or powerful enough to have full autonomy over foreign affairs, and moreover, had a Spartan judge installed within its own government, it can be guaranteed that where Sparta's vote went, so too did Kithera's. There were a number of other similar places undoubtedly under the relative control of Sparta. Each member of the League had one vote, Sparta included, regardless of how large or how small the polis might have been. Only a majority vote was required to declare for action. At a minimum, allies had to contribute one-third of their full hoplite complement, and depending on the gravity of the situation at hand, more could be levied. The Spartans had the right to choose where the forces would muster, who would lead them, which was generally one of the two kings, and were able to officer the regiments with the elites of the homoioi class. Assuredly, the less assiduously trained allied forces benefited from the rigid discipline of the Spartans. I'm sure for some, it was quite a rude shock to their pride. The reverse side of this clause also involved any peace settlements. Once again, councils were to be held, with the majority vote required, to achieve a cessation to hostilities. Now, despite the aforementioned superiority Sparta held within the councils for war and peace, as we shall see in future episodes, it didn't always get its own way. The major opposition to its voting bloc came from another that coalesced around the city of Corinth. Powerful in its own right, it could exert extreme influence over the other League members nearby, Sicyon and later Megara, to name but a couple. Finally, along with these three main clauses, there was also, so to speak, a get-out-of-jail-free card for the Allies. Thucydides labels this as an impediment to gods or heroes. We must remember that in ancient Greece, all forms of treaties and their terms were sworn with various gods or heroes as their witnesses. Often the written form of these agreements was left within the temples where the gods could watch over them, and presumably 
ensure their adherence. Therefore, if a League member had an ancillary alliance with another polis, that could trump a decision for war or peace on a local level, absolving a member from either declaring war or accepting peace. The notoriously pious Spartans would be the last people to object to such an exemption. This occurred, for example, in 421 during the Peloponnesian War, when the Peace of Nicaeus was declared. It was a terrible peace that we'll look at in detail another time, but in this instance, Corinth was in the small minority of League members that didn't wish to declare peace. The reason given was that it was in alliance with some northern, non-League cities that were still fighting against the Athenians and as such, could not break its oath to those places. It was a largely contrived attempt to keep the Spartans in the Peloponnesian War, a war that at that stage, the Corinthians had every reason to keep waging. I'll conclude my story of the Peloponnesian League here. It was the foundation of Sparta's ability to project power abroad, and also the shield with which it could protect its domestic power base. Its formulation gave the homoioi the ability to achieve extra security against Hellad uprising, and its importance to ultimate Greek victory in the Greco-Persian Wars cannot and should not be ignored. I'd also encourage everyone to head over to my website where I've uploaded many photos of the cities discussed in this episode, all from my time living and working in Greece. With the League's formation and consolidation, Sparta was truly and firmly placed as a powerful player on the international stage. The next episode will look at how other non-Greek nations turned to Sparta for aid in times of crisis, and how other Greeks looked to her for support in their own times of strife. We'll also look at how Sparta dealt with the seemingly perpetual thorn in her side, Argos, and at the same time some of the figures on the Spartan stage throughout the 6th century. So you're all very welcome to join me on Sunday, March the 13th, for episode 32, Sparta, Embassies and Enemies. Until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. If you'd like to contribute to the show, please head over to www.spartanhistorypodcast.com where you'll see on the homepage buttons for Buy Me A Coffee and PayPal. Alternatively, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Spartan History or paypal.me forward slash Spartan History. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore History and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from and leave a review. See you next time.